And last time we were looking at uh, Terah, the father of Abraham, and his journey partway to the promised land. And we saw that Terah stopped partway. Uh, he never made it to the promised land, even though uh, he set off. And uh, we said that that's a bit of a type, really, for the Israelites who, who don't make it into the promised land, who stay uh, stuck in the wilderness. And we said that as Christians, we face the same danger, uh, that actually we can appear to set off, but we can get stuck uh, on our walk in the Christian life. This is the question regarding that. It says, how can we be confident in our salvation, even when we feel stuck in Haran? So Haran was the place where they, they stopped off. And we were told that we weren't given the reason why Terah stayed in Haran. We weren't told why he was there. It could be to do with uh, issues with his son, who was also called Haran, who he'd, he'd lost uh, before he set off. Um, but I suppose the question really is then, how do we feel confident in our salvation when we are feeling stuck in our Christian life? How do we uh, keep our confidence? So just two things to help you uh, in that, if you're feeling like you're stuck in Haran uh, this morning. The first one is an objective one. Actually, our faith does not depend on our feelings, on our emotions, and how we feel that we are. Actually, our faith depends on, on Jesus' death on the cross and uh, his resurrection from the dead that we've been talking about this morning. So actually, our, our, our grounding is not in just how we feel or our response, but in the actual events that took place. So even on our, our darkest day, even on our hardest day, we can say, well, did Jesus die on the cross? Did he rise again? Did he die for sin? Yes, he did. And the Bible says that if we put our trust in him, then that is what secures our salvation, not how we feel or, or what we're in in that particular moment. So that's one answer to it. It's objective. But having said that, it still doesn't take away that feeling that you can have, does it? Uh, sometimes when you're stuck in that particular uh, situation. So I'd like to suggest a second thing, to be taken alongside with that, not, to, not instead of but along, alongside it. And I suppose, really, it's worth asking yourself the question, if you're feeling stuck in Haran, if you're feeling um, that you're, you're not moving, the question you really need to ask yourself is, it, am I happy in Haran? Am I comfortable with where I am? Uh, do I feel at home in Haran? Or do I actually know that I really need to push on? And that is a really good way of thinking through who we really are. If we really are not going to make it to the promised land, then actually we won't have that desire to move on from Haran at all. We'll be quite comfortable. We won't be worrying about it, really. So people have said, you know, if you're worried that you might lose your salvation, that's actually quite a good chance. There's a good chance there that really you, you're not going to turn away. Because actually, if you're worried about it, it's a sign that you're not comfortable, that you're not settled in Haran. Actually, you feel like you want to move on. So I want to encourage you to just think seriously about how you feel about how you are. If you're asking that question, that's a really good sign. Because actually that shows that you, there's something, you know there's something not quite right about being stuck. So all I plead with you then is to really uh, push on. And we're going to see a bit of that this morning as we see Abraham push on from Haran uh, to make it into the promised land. Again, if you have any further questions to that, do either come and talk to me afterwards or, or write it on a blue slip. And uh, we can chat about it uh, some more next week. So this week we're looking at Genesis 12. Again, you'll find it helpful to have it open in front of you. And it's fair to say, as we've been going through Genesis uh, so far, the story has been quite, uh, quite gloomy, hasn't it, really? Uh, we've had the fall, we've had the flood, we've had the cursing of Canaan by Noah, we've had the Tower of Babel and the spread of people across the world, we've had the death of Terah en route to the Promised Land. 
And this is really what the Bible means when it talks about the reign of death in Romans. It's a really awful uh, situation to be in. Sure, there have been little glimpses of hope, haven't we? Have you seen Enoch uh, go up? We've seen uh, Shem seeming to, to be doing a bit better. But that's all they've been. They've been glimpses. They're sort of gone in the twinkling of an eye. But this week is different. This week we actually see the turning of the tide. This is the sequel, if you like, to Genesis 1-11, to where things start to go right. If you're a film fan, you know, this is Return of the Jedi, you know, when he comes back. This is the, or Lord of the Rings, this is the return of the king, when things start to change. So we get here more than glimpses of hope. Actually, here we get solid hope. The fight back against evil really begins in these chapters. Some people have gone far enough to say that actually this is the second half of the Bible that we're moving into. This is where it splits. Part one was death and, and judgment. Uh, but actually part two will climax in the coming of the Lord Jesus who will finally uh, come to do away with sin and death forever. But the thing is we're not quite there yet this week. We haven't quite got to Jesus. Uh, we're, we're here with Abraham. But it is the beginning of that process. It's the beginning of that change. Beginning of that turning of the tide. So yes, this is the second half. But we're only at the beginning. And our story begins in an unexpected way. It begins with some words. Have a look with me again at uh, verses 1 to 3. The fight back begins. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God begins the fight back. God begins the turnaround with some words, with a promise. Now that might seem a very strange way to start uh, the fight back process. He doesn't give Abraham things, if you like, he doesn't give them the, uh, what he's talking about. He promises to give Abraham these things. So think about it for a second. God could have just put Abraham in the land, couldn't he? He could have supernaturally got rid uh, of everybody and sort of dropped Abraham slap bang in the middle. I mean, we know God can do that because he does it with Philip in the New Testament. But he doesn't. God doesn't just put him there. Actually, God begins his fight back with words, with speech. With the very same words that he made the world, he now promises to remake the world. But why does he do it this way? Well, it teaches us two things that are vitally important. The first thing is that God works through his word. God works through his word. God acts through speaking. That's what we've already seen all the way through Genesis. He makes the world through speaking. He gives his command to Adam and Eve through speaking. He saves Noah through speaking, if you think about it. He talks to him, tells him to build the ark. He confuses the languages through speaking. He doesn't just do it, he announces it first. Let us go down. And we forget this part of the story at our peril. Because it means that if we want God to act, what we really want him to do is to speak. That's why we spend so much time talking about his word. It's not just that uh, we really like reading. I know for a fact that actually a few people in this room really don't like reading. We're not just book uh, 
people who love books. Actually, we talk about his word because that's the way God acts. So if we want God to act, we must hear him speak. That's the primary way that he works. So think about it. In our experience, he saves through his word as the gospel is proclaimed. He grows us through his word as he speaks to us in the Bible. He comforts us through his word. So our primary relationship with God is God speaks and we listen. And that's how he relates to, relates to Abraham. He speaks to him and Abraham listens. So that's the first thing that we see. God is speaking. And that's because that's the way God works, through his word. The second thing, though, is that God wants a response to his word. You see, it's not enough for Abraham just to get to the land. God's been there before, hasn't he? He put Adam and Eve in the garden. What was their problem? Well, they disbelieved, didn't they? They disbelieved, so they disobeyed. So what is God looking for? He's looking for the response of faith, of belief in him. And he could only do that if he does this through a promise. If he just lands Abraham there, there's no faith, there's no belief, he just turns up. Where's the faith if Abraham just gets parachuted into Canaan? Belief can only exist when there's an option of disbelief and disobedience. So God makes Abraham a promise and he's expecting the response of faith. So what does God promise to Abraham? Well, he promises a great nation to a childless couple. A great nation to a childless couple. We've already been told the first time we met Sarah in chapter 11 that she's childless. Uh, so verse 30 of chapter 11. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. We're told about it even before the beginning of this chapter. So it's bound up with what we think about Sarah. But now God is promising this childless couple a great nation, a huge people, even though they're in their 60s and 70s. God promises blessing to a cursed people. The blessing that comes in part through a great name that God will give him. Do you see that there in verse 2? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Part of this is that actually God is going to give him a great name. Now that's in stark contrast to what we saw a couple of weeks ago with the Tower of Babel. If you remember back in chapter 11, verse 4, this is what it's, they, they were saying. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see, the, the problem with Babel was that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, here is God now promising to give Abraham a great name. God will, will do it for him. Abraham's not going to make his own name great. God is going to do it for him. And he will bless him. A blessing that will spread to all people, all families of the earth. What does that mean? Well, we know what that means, don't we? We've been, we saw in chapter 10, the table of nations that went out all across the earth. So it's not just Abraham. It's not even just the descendants of Shem, but the far-flung descendants of Japheth, the cursed descendants of Ham. <coughs> this blessing will be for all peoples everywhere. And the rest of the story of the Bible, really, is that blessing coming to all those people. And ultimately, it will be through Jesus Christ as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. 
But there's not just blessing here. It, is, it talks a lot about blessing, doesn't it? But there is something else as well. There's blessing and cursing. See, how do you get blessing here? It says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. So you get blessing through blessing Abraham. How do you get cursed? Well, you curse Abraham, you dishonour him. If you think about it, that's quite a remarkable thing to say. He's saying, actually, your sort of eternal state depends on your response to this one man. We see that worked out with his descendants. The Egyptians will curse Abraham and his descendants, and they will be cursed. But it also points us forward to Jesus again, doesn't it? How we treat that one man actually decides our destiny. Our blessing or cursing all depends on Christ, the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham. But up until this point, all we've really seen is cursing. Now there's the option of blessing. God is stepping in. So he promises blessing to a cursed people. And then thirdly, he promises a land to a people in exile. Promises a land to people in exile. You see this made more explicit in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God's told him before that he'll go to the land that he'll show him. Well now he's, he's got there. So far God has just been sending people away. But here God is actually bringing people back. If you remember we talked last week about people being sent to the east all the time and that being a sign of judgment. Well Abraham's told to travel west Instead of eastwards to cursing, it's westwards to blessing. To a land that will be his very own. But that's quite new in Genesis, if you think about it. Because all the way through, God has just been kicking people out, hasn't he? Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Cain gets kicked out into the land of Nod. The people of Babel get kicked out all across the world. But here, God is calling somebody into a land. What will become known as the promised land, Canaan. Abraham doesn't seem to know where this land will be, but he just obeys and trusts God with the outcome. It could actually be that verse 7 is the first time that Abraham actually finds out he's made it to the right place. This is the land that God was going to show him. This is the land that his offspring will inherit. So God calls Abraham back from exile, from being sent out like everybody else, and brings them into the promised land. Now it's worth saying with these three promises that these promises seem impossible, don't they? Let's not understate this. I mean, even being sent somewhere doesn't mean that you're going to inherit it, that you're going to have it as a land. If I sent one of you to Birmingham, it doesn't mean that one day you will own Birmingham, does it? It doesn't mean that will be your land. Yet God promises a whole land, not just a city, a whole country to one man. And his descendants. And that one man and his descendants, well, he's 75, it tells us, as he sets off. And he has no descendants. His wife is 65, at a time when that really mattered. Remember, we saw that the life cycles are getting closer uh, to our own with the ages that things happen. 65, then, is pretty close to what 65 is now. But with no IVF or fertility drugs. The land that he sends them to is not empty. It's occupied by bloodthirsty Canaanites. They're not going to just lie down and give the land up. So the blessing here looks impossible, doesn't it? Especially with the way that mankind has treated God 
all the way through. Actually, mankind all the way through has invoked curses on itself. And yet here is God promising blessing. So as Abraham is made these promises, it's no small feat for Abraham to believe it. It's actually a really big thing for Abraham to believe it, isn't it? Humanly speaking, it looks totally impossible. But that's the point. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But we're not speaking humanly, are we? It's God speaking. And what he says happens. And Abraham believes this and sets off. He goes. He's told to go. Now, people ask the question, is the blessing conditional on him going? Well, yes, it is in a way. He needs to show faith. But just in the way that God works in us to produce faith by his Holy Spirit, so he does with Abraham. God supplies what he asks for. The New Testament equivalent of what he does is Mark 8.34. You'll see on the back of your notice sheets, there's some verses there. Mark 8.34. This is Jesus speaking. Then calling the crowd to him and his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the sort of New Testament equivalent to what Abraham is being asked. Now, is our blessing as Christians conditional on us taking up our cross and following Jesus? Yes, it is. But God works in us to cause us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. So it's not that we earn our forgiveness by taking up our cross and following him. It's by grace, isn't it? But those who have received God's grace will take up their cross and follow him. It's a bit like a situation with a plumber. So fixing a tap doesn't make you a plumber, does it? But all plumbers fix taps. Yeah? It's a condition of being a plumber that you fix taps. But it doesn't earn you the right to be called a plumber. Okay, the two are linked together. There's a conditionality in there. But it's not the idea of earning. So leaving didn't earn Abraham the promised land. But he still has to use the faith that God has given him as he goes. Which he does. And we see that in our next section. The fulfilment begins. Oh, that's the, the journey he's, he's making there. Um, there we go. Hmm. The fulfilment begins. There we go. Okay. Let me read that to you. Uh, verses uh, 4 to 7, actually. 4 to 7. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Abram here believes God. How do we know that? Well, he sets off. He does what he has been told by God to do. He completes what he actually started earlier on, when he set off five years before with his father from Ur. This time, though, he actually leaves his father's house. If you think about it, last time he didn't really leave his father's house, because his dad came with him. 
He now takes his uh, nephew Lot, but the rest of his father's house stayed behind in Haran. He does the last 400 miles of the journey, which we just saw uh, there. Uh, Last 400 miles down uh, to Shechem. Uh, Somebody asked last week, why did they take such an indirect route, you know, going all the way up and all the way down? Well, it's because that area up there is called the Fertile Crescent. So there are lots of uh, rivers and places to eat and cities to go through. Uh, So going across really wouldn't be a... Uh, an option. It looks green on that map, but really it's basically desert uh, through there. So he follows the roads and the trade routes. And Abraham brings all the possessions and the people that have been added to his household in Haran. It seems even in that five years in Haran, God has blessed him. So already he's not just one man and his wife, he's a small band of people. And he settles near Shechem. This is a bit more of a, a close-up map there. At the Oak of Moreh. Abraham will revisit other places in the promised land, but he won't come back here to Shechem. There are ominous tones to this place when you read through the rest of Genesis. Jacob will come here, he'll he'll buy a land, he'll build an altar, that sounds all quite good in chapter 33. But it's here that his daughter Dinah will be raped in chapter 34 by a man called Shechem. It seems that actually the city gets its name a bit later on, it's named after uh, this guy's son, Shechem. And we know already from Genesis that naming your city after your son is not a good idea. That's what Cain does uh, right back at the beginning. It's the city that Levi and Simeon will massacre in revenge for their sister. It annoys Jacob so much that he'll actually curse Levi and Simeon uh, for having done so. It's the tree that Jacob will hide his idols under in chapter 35 instead of destroying them. So it's sort of a bit ominous. In Deuteronomy 11, which was also written by Moses, they're commanded to go there when the land is possessed, when they finally get it. And there they're to announce cursings and blessings on each other from different sides of the mountain in the valley. So, actually, this isn't a a great place. There are ideas of cursing, there are lots of atrocious things that happen here. And it's no mistake that in this verse it mentions uh, that there are Canaanites in the land. So you see the end of verse 6? At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. It's one of those little details that sort of dropped in. It could be in anywhere, but it's put here with Shechem. It gives you the idea that this is going to be a tough place for Israel. Actually, in the future, in Moses' days, this will become the place where the northern kingdom breaks away. This will be the first capital of the breakaway kingdom. It will become an idolatrous shrine in the time of Hosea. Uh, We saw that last year as we looked at Hosea. And yet... This is the place where God promises to give the land to Abraham. In the really tough place. It's not an easy place. It's a place associated with defilement and cursing. But in one sense, what better place to do it? This is what God is going to do. This is what God is here for, to reverse this. And it begins by one altar in the north of Canaan. But that isn't the end of the story, is it? Abraham doesn't just stay there and sit sit tight. He presses on. And that shows us that the fulfilment, thirdly, is yet to come. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on still going towards the Negev. Abraham here heads towards the Negev. 
If I go back to that map on the uh, previous page, the Negev is this bit here in the extreme south. So he starts off in the north and he's heading south. That's what it's telling you. He's heading to the desert in the Sinai Peninsula. It's where Beersheba is. And later on in the Bible, we'll talk about you know, Dan and Beersheba as the sort of extremities of the land. Uh, it's a bit like John O'Groat from Land's End. He's heading towards Land, uh, Land's End. He's heading south. He's doing the full length of the land. And he's building altars and he's calling on the name of the Lord as he goes. God has just promised to give him the land and give it to his offspring as well. And he goes off and he looks at the land. He heads south. And where he stops next is significant in that it's very insignificant. Have a look at uh, again at, verses, at verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. It's significant in that it's insignificant. It's not even a place with a name. The only way he can tell you where it is is saying there's this place on one side and there's this place on the other. It's sort of in between places. It's a nowhere place. But he will return there in the next chapter. He won't stay there. Actually, the only thing significant about it is that it's between these two places. And him and his nephew will head in opposite directions. But it's a nowhere place in itself. Nobody wants to stay there. It's a stopgap. And that's further enforced by the fact that you're told that he's in a tent. See that in verse 8? And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He's a traveller. He's a nomad. He's in transit. He's in between places in a tent. That's basically what we're being told in these verses. Doesn't sound very glamorous, does it, for him sort of taking the promised land? Actually, he's in transit. And if you think I'm making too much about this tent business, if you have a look again on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land to which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, this little section, verses 8 and 9, remind us that Abraham understood that this wasn't really the big deal. That Canaan was not the final destination. That his travels as a nomad, they, they remind us that actually this is what real faith looks like. Abraham doesn't settle down somewhere, he keeps moving, he keeps going, because he's looking for that better city. And spiritually speaking, we're like Abraham, strangers and exiles in this world. Now most stories end, if you like, with them going home at the end, don't they? That's, that's how, you have that sort of there and back again, don't you, a hobbit's tale. No matter how many sequels there are in film series, they always sort of end up back at home. They go on a journey and they come back again. That's what happens in Return of the King, eventually, after about eight endings. 
That's what happens in the return of the Jedi in a fashion. But not so for the Christian in this life. There is no return home in this life. We remain pilgrims. We remain strangers. That's one of the reasons why the Christian life is so hard. We long for our home. We long for Eden. We long for it, but we don't get there in this life. You see, before putting our trust in Jesus, we have that vague longing for something that we don't know, don't we? Perhaps that's you this morning. You've got that sort of nagging feeling that you've never quite felt at home where you are, but you're not sure why. Well, the Bible's answer is that, in a sense, you're not at home. Actually, you were made for something else. But that's why it's harder for the Christian. We know we're not at home. We know where home is. Yet we know that we're strangers and pilgrims in this world, waiting for that better city, waiting for that better country, with God in glory. And one day we will be home. One day we will be in that better country that Abraham was longing for, even as he lived in a tent in the place he was supposed to inherit. Not Canaan, but the new creation. A new Eden. Eternity with God. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Hope in the midst of our homelessness. Hope in the midst of our wanderings. There's that lovely hymn, isn't there? There's the hope that stands the test of time. That lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave. To see the matchless beauty of a day divine. When I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die. And every longing satisfied. Then joy unspeakable will flood my soul. For I am truly home. That's what we look forward to, isn't it? There is an end in sight. Abraham knew that. We know that. But in the meantime, we walk by faith. We live as strangers and pilgrims. We face that this life, this world will be tough as we wander through. So we don't get too comfortable. And we long for our, our home in heaven, 